0: Like you want to find the edge, but you don't want to go over the edge, right? So that's, that's the balance, that self-preservation.
1: What gives us our edge? And how do we go beyond it? How thin is the line between taking part and tipping into victory? What inspires those moments of rare advantage? that change the shape of a race? Are winners born or made? And what happens when things go wrong, or when it all goes right? Welcome to The Edge. We'll be talking to people operating at the very edge of possibility, from athletes to actors, and from artists to entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Theo van den Bruke. Watch out. This is The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. Patrick Dempsey, thank you so much for joining us for the inaugural episode of The Edge with Tag Heuer. It's wonderful to have you here with us. Um, How are you and where are you?
0: I'm in Maine and it's great to be on The Edge um, here in Maine. So yeah, I'm in the country, so I'm uh, I'm in heaven.
1: You know, we should probably start by saying you are uh, the kind of very modern iteration of a polymath. You are a Hollywood leading man, you're a racing driver, you're an entrepreneur, a cyclist, activist. I mean, you have many, many different careers and many fingers in lots of different pies. Um, a, a, kind of like, how has what's happened with the quarantine and with lockdown affected what you're doing? And kind of which is the one that people are most surprised by in terms of your career choices?
0: Yeah, I mean, everything has stopped this year. So this year has been a year of just sitting still, letting things come up, and then kind of getting uh, an idea of what the next year will bring. Mm We're hoping what the next year year will bring, sort of setting goals for 2021 at this point. And with all of the different interests I have, it's really trying to find time to incorporate and to maintain each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Balance, I think, is very hard. To achieve. It's 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 like juggling. You just try to keep all the balls in the air and then simplify your pattern so that you have more time to spend with each project. How to, how to train yourself to just deal with every crisis as it comes and it's meant to be, right? You don't yeah. let it upset. You just go, this is it. This is the, the direction we go in.
2: And
1: is that? Are you practicing stoicism now? In in I'm trying the I'm well because I fail. You're doing very well. <laughs>
0: you, you know, <laughs> I think that's the the aspiration is to try to stay in that place all the time.
1: Because you you're you're a big well, a big meditator. You meditate, right? I, I've I've I'd I heard...
0: anything to have tools to be able to survive life. I think right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've I personally have found it quite hard to find that space. I mean, I guess you you. I
0: find okay. it's it's easier for me to get into that space if I'm on a bike, because really? then you're 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 getting your body moving, so you take that anxiety and you channel it, and then you calm the mind once you get into the physical activity.
1: I mean, I guess looking at what else you do, I mean, you with the racing, with acting, I mean, obviously with the cycling, all of those things, I would imagine involve a certain taking yourself out of your own mindset and putting yourself somewhere completely different i mean it, it, do you find that that kind of practice of not necessarily stoicism but of that kind of meditate meditative behavior applies to all of those pursuits
0: yeah i think you use a lot of those uh skills in everything you do if like yeah. we were talking about you know compartmentalizing and sort of being able to focus 100 and going okay let me just go into a deep focus on this particular subject or whatever i'm focusing on. And stay there with that.
1: Mm. And do you find it hard, or is it, it depends it on how many?
0: Have, I think you know what what becomes hard and the real challenge is when you have the obstacle that's getting in the way of what you're trying to achieve, and, and and staying calm in the midst of that conflict. Like with what we're dealing with, just on the technical side of things, with this, you know, today it's just you know you spend half of your time just getting ready to show up now. It's true. Right? And you have to be able to to prepare for that mentally so it doesn't spin you out when you get into the actual meat of whatever that meeting is about or whatever that Zoom call is about.
1: Totally. And I guess it's dealing, you know, personally in terms of taqwa, but dealing dealing with that pressure and kind of transforming it into something that doesn't kind of squash you but enables you to rise that above it. That
0: empowers power. you. So how do you Empowered use the the pressure to to accelerate your focus not Um, diminish the focus and that just I think is like anything else it's just it's like going to a gym you just have to strengthen that mental muscle and everybody arrives at their own technique in their own way
1: which of the the kind of things that you do in your life and I'm not just talking about your career pursuits but you know whether it's engaging with your family or anything what what kind of enables you to um what has enabled you to practice that most kind of acutely if that makes sense. I mean, is it the race? Because I imagine with racing, you must be so deadly laser focused that it must like hone that muscle in a very specific way. But is it is Yeah, it the stakes else? are
0: much higher. So your level of attention is that much greater, right? Because you know that the mistake could be catastrophic. Um, and you want to have that sense all the time in life. It's like living at that height, living on the edge. You know, this is about the edge, right? So mm-hmm. what is the edge? How do you define it is really just being keyed up enough and being really on point where you're you have that attention to detail and your situational awareness of everything. And that should apply in everything you do. That's the challenge is finding things that engage you enough to to be able to focus that intensely. So that's what a lot of this year has been about is really sifting through all the things that are out there. And you're like, well, and you prioritize what has the most meaning and what is going to have the biggest impact on the safety of your family and the well-being of your family, and then everything goes
1: from there. I, I mean, I guess this year specifically has meant that you probably haven't been able to do many of those things that have enabled you to focus in that way. So have you found other things maybe that are kind of slightly smaller? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like certain people have found tidying during lockdown has has made them focus, or, you know, like the whole Marie Kondo um, explosion right. uh, exactly you, I think we've
0: all gone through that in the last
1: you know <laughs> year
0: at some point or another where we've had major cleaning and like <laughs> you go through and you separate okay let's just put the pile over there and then go through the the emotional attachment to these objects right yeah exactly. uh, which is I think is really therapeutic it's like less is more we have so much clutter I certainly do it, that it's interesting that you brought that up is it is really streamlining like last night I was you know cleaning out some stuff here in Maine. And I'm like, okay, what do I really need? Can I, can I start to live with less and really extracting from my life the things that are distractions? Yeah. We don't have a lot of time, right? So you want to, the interesting thing about the stoicism is like you live every day, like it's your last because you don't, you know, you look back at like, okay, what do I look back at my life and what do I feel good about leaving behind here? What have I done that has something of a positive impact
1: on society? And for you, what, what, is, what are the conclusions you've come to about that? What are those things?
0: Well, you know, I, I really enjoy the work being done with the Dempsey Center and the integrative medicine that's being done. I think that should go hand in hand as soon as someone is diagnosed with, with cancer is that holistic approach comes in. So you attack it on a physical and an emotional level that really will help that patient and the family really have the stamina to go through the treatment. So to me, that has the most meaning. And then using my visibility of the platform of the show in that pseudo-doctor world to bring the awareness there. That, to me, then it has real meaning. And then you're making a profound impact in people's lives in a good way. Uh, the,
1: the Demp Center, I, mean, I hope you don't mind us talking about it, but it, I, I, it was triggered by the death of your mother from ovarian cancer. Right.
0: My it. mom fought Ovarian cancer for over 17 years, 12 reoccurrences. So every couple of years, it seemed like it would be coming back. So we spent a lot of time in and out of hospitals. And, and, you know, what could we do to give her a better quality of life? And a lot of the things that we learned through that process really informed uh, us on how to set up the foundation. Right. And that psychosocial aspect of uh, cancer. And also, survivorship is another thing, too, is the specter of will this cancer come back? So you deal with prevention all the way through until survivorship, and when you do something you're working in a nonprofit or you're working with uh, something that is altruistic what what you do as a as a collective as a team as an organization is really powerful what people come without ego they're doing doing something with the sole benefit of how it can impact and make life better for someone else is really that's the place to be in a life I think. But in fact, you, I know. That's what we want to be doing.
1: That's what you want to be doing.
0: Yeah. Don't way. you think in your experience that you feel that way?
1: Definitely. I mean, I mean I, personally, I feel like I'm still figuring it out. And, in, in, you know, it's that you, you go through the the arc of kind of doing something because you love it. And then you get to a point where, like, like I do journalism. And it's like, well, actually, could I be writing about something that has more meaning or helping in a certain way that maybe I'm not? And I think that that is a very personal process that one has to go through and i feel like it must be a kind of life's work i don't i don't know if if you agree with that but i i I don't think you'd ever necessarily reach a conclusion if you do feel that way that you've you've achieved it because then have you really (laughs)
0: no because we're we're in a constant state of constant refinement right that's why we're Mm. here and until we pass i guess we don't stop working you can't Do,
1: do you think that's kind of um 'Cause again, you know, not to keep labouring the point, but going back to with acting and with racing, they're both, I would imagine, incredibly competitive fields to be in. And yes. and what you do with kind of the medical side of things and the philanthropic side of things, the altruistic side of things, is I imagine not. So is it is it a balm to do those things, or is it is that the wrong way of looking at it?
0: Yeah, I think the, it's in all of these things, you have to be careful with your ego. And that's true for everything, right? Like the really great athletes or performers have strong ego without being egotistical. You know, they, there's there's some sense of humility in there um, that really allows you to engage with someone. And I think that's what's great about sports or you're competing um, in the motorsport and other racers is that, you know, how fast you are. It's in the data, you know. It's, it's not an abstract notion as an actor, there's the competition, but it's so abstract as to how do you quantify success or talent? Right? (laughs) Because everybody's so different and you're creating a character and you're, you're, you're selling yourself. So it's a celebration of an individual. So how do you compare yourself to another individual? That's where you get into trouble. And that's where the ego can really undermine a person. Um, in a sport, you know, either you win or you lose. In, in in acting it's you get the role, you don't get the role, but it has nothing to do with you personally and your being. That but that's how you're being judged. That's where the competition is, which is really challenging mentally.
1: I can imagine. I mean And ha- hard
0: on friendships within with with relationships with actors, I think, because of that.
1: Right. And and I mean, did you feel that? I mean, I, I imagine you obviously did. You felt that personally. And did you struggle with it? And how did you kind of overcome it, if ever you did?
0: <laughs> um, I spend a lot more time. A lot of my friends are really either they're, they're, they're cyclists, they're skiers, or they're uh, race car drivers, and not so many acquaintances within my chosen profession, the acting community. I, I stay pretty isolated from it,
1: okay. to be honest with you. did that harm you in terms of like job opportunities? I don't know. I mean, I imagine...
0: Well, I think it would probably help if I was a little bit more social and (laughs) did that, but that's that's not where my head is at.
1: No. I mean, the way we're talking, it makes it sound as if racing... Was a solution to that problem, when actually that isn't true. We, you kind of started out as a sportsman; you were a natural-born sportsman. You you were a juggler. Well, I wanted to
0: uh, ski race. Which yeah, is really interesting. Right. You know, very much like Jack Hoyer in the great tradition of Tag Hoyer and skiing and, and capturing time. So I wanted to be an Olympic skier. Inmar Stenmark was my childhood idol, who was you know in that generation in the seventies and eighties was one of the best skiers, alpine skiers in the world, mm. consistently. Racing um, and always on the podium, you know, so top winner. So that was who was driving me as a kid. And I ended up riding the unicycle and, and doing that for my training go- to improve my skiing. <laughs> okay. And then I ended up getting involved with this vaudeville troupe and starting to perform. And then that's where my career ended up going. I, I, but I always you- wanted to be a sportsman. So I feel more at home within a community like a racing community or a skiing community or a cycling community. This just, I I just feel at home there immediately. And I always feel slightly uncomfortable within the Hollywood community and that world. When I'm working, it's different, but in a social setting, it doesn't feel as comfortable to me.
1: I've heard you talk about the um, vaudeville um element of your life uh, kind of loosely before i'd like to be a little bit more um granular about it can you, can you can you explain exactly what it was like and what you did and what 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 was the um, what was the world that you were in
0: the <laughs> world was called the new Vaudevillians, which were you know Maine in the 70s and the 80s or a lot of people dropped out in the 60s and came up here got in touch with nature and, and a lot of those skills like from the big fairs uh, and things like that people started performing in a traditional way and lo and behold in the town i was growing up with in in in, in buckfield maine was the hotbed for this group of new vaudevillians buckfield leather and lather and it was a traveling show where they would do performer performing like juggling and slapstick and sort of like sketch comedy and then sell product on the side to kind of make money so it was a medicine show in that sense they weren't selling any product like okay this is going to save your life from whatever. But we were selling leather goods and things to treat leather and things like that on the side, out of the back of this old Oldsmobile uh, truck that the stage would fold down on. And then we would travel around in this 1930s truck. <laughs> and that's that's how I was making money as a teenager.
1: Amazing. So and I guess
0: juggling it. and magic and, and all so that stuff. And some got- of the magicians were all like a little bit of fun pickpockets in the sense of what they could get away with. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they're a little bit dodgy in their behavior.
1: I'm guessing you weren't one of those.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I was fascinated. By and I was the youngest one in the group. I was like the little kid in the group. So I was sort of like the mascot.
1: So I guess you got a little bit of a taste for as much performing as for, it's like competing. I mean, because, you know, juggling is an active pursuit. It's not as if you can... Well, just-
0: there's competitions. Like there's the International Jugglers Competition in the IGA, and uh, they have a big competition every year. They have a junior competition and then they have a senior competition. I placed second in the junior competition in 1983. <laughs> Anthony Gatta was the winner of this tournament and he was like seven and he was into number, which is like big, you know, he was up, I think the seven rings or something like that. Wow. And that's sort of the thing within the, the juggling community is how many things you can keep in the air. But it's fun to follow the juggling community now because of the tricks that are being performed from everybody around the world.
1: There's a metaphor for It's your great on Instagram.
0: If you follow the International Jugglers Association, and it's really amazing to see. Certainly the street performers around the world, those are the ones who I think are the most talented and the most innovative. And they're like these little stars in the juggling world and they're, they're performing on a street corner. And it's really fascinating to see what they can do.
1: Amazing. I mean, yeah. It's fun you- to reach
0: out to them too and talk to everybody
1: do you still do you still i do
0: i like certain jugglers i'll reach out to that are around the world i'm like this is amazing how did you come how did they how do they design these tricks how do these tricks evolve which is really fascinating
1: yeah i can imagine i mean you so you grew up in maine obviously you're there now but you you grew up in maine and right it was in maine that you kind of first had i don't want to say run in with uh with auto racing but your passion for cars and driving.
0: Yeah, the only way to get around in rural areas is to have a car or a bike, right? So, And then in the winter, we would cross-country ski everywhere because we could because everything would be shut down. So for me, it was total isolation. So how do you keep yourself engaged and entertained? Because the closest neighbor was a mile away where I grew up. So I could drive the back roads in my dad's pickup truck and be okay. You know, you could go down these dirt roads and no one would bother you. So you had the freedom that you get when you're on a farm or you're out in, in the, the rural communities. Um, but the problem with that is you have tremendous isolation. We don't have the, I didn't have the technology that we have today, so you're connected to the rest of the world. There you were really, um, it was up to your imagination to keep yourself entertained and engaged.
1: Sure, I, I I read something about there used to be these kind of cars that would come through your town, and you you were kind of seduced by the romance of the. Yeah, the
0: first uh, time I saw a Jaguar, I didn't know what it was. It was <laughs> one of the most breathtaking cars I'd ever seen. It was a one hundred and
1: twenty. Okay, like,
0: definitely a one hundred and twenty. I remember that. And uh, this woman was driving it, and it was the most amazing romantic image I'd ever seen in my life. It was this woman with a scarf pulled into this gas station and this. 1950s XK120. It was beautiful, and uh, where we lived, it was on Route 4, so that was one of the major routes where you could see cars through the summer months, or in the fall when people would come up and look at the leaves, you would see everybody out exercising their antique cars, and that was my first love of those. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I got to LA that I realized, wow, people actually can number one afford these cars and actually use them. just <laughs> 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 like every other car is this, you know, supercar in California.
1: What was the first kind of, um, I mean, I, what was the first car you ever bought? And then I'd kind of like to know more about your car collection. Because I imagine you have quite. The
0: first a- car I bought was a 280D Mercedes, you know. And this woman in Maine, you know, the winters are so cold up here that you had to you had to plug the car in, the glow plug to keep the diesel going. So she wow. got tired of dealing with it in the winter. So she gave it to me for like dirt cheap. It was like two grand for this 1972 brown mercedes that was my first car
1: fantastic and, then, and you, i imagine you've amassed quite a collection now can you, i've can settled you,
0: down a little bit but yeah have i have it. just porsche now so i have my porsche tractor from 60s from the early 60s which is really cool uh, safari car which is like a little rally car from 1982 uh, the 356 63 porsche uh i got that when I did the movie "Can't Buy Me Love," I spent my entire paycheck on that car, and I still have that car—a
1: 72
0: T an R and um, an 82 with a eight, uh, 3.6 liter. We dropped in it. Patrick Long and I modified that car a little bit, so that's fun.
1: Which is which is your favorite to drive?
0: The 356, without question.
1: Oh, really, the okay. older
0: ones, yeah, they're really they're they're fun, and when you're out on the road, it, it just makes you smile it's so much fun and then your interaction with other people you know they're warm to you you know they're open and that's nice
1: Um, you've achieved a kind of an extraordinary amount in racing um in in a relatively short t- space of time can we talk a little bit about that because obviously you competed in le mans you were on the podium um okay. and that was with Tag Heuer, um if i'm not mistaken <laughs> and it would be just how did it feel to achieve those things how Did you ever really believe that you would be able to, or was your mindset such that you were kind of, you always knew it was going to happen?
0: Well, early on, I wanted to race at Le Mans. That was always the goal. Um, Certainly in endurance racing, and I I focused on endurance racing so I could do Daytona and Sebring. I never made it to Bathurst. That was the one race I regret not being able to do. Really, Um, Baja 1000, I did. So I got a chance to do pretty much all the races I set out to do. Um, and it was great. And certainly working with Tag Heuer and the history, the rich history within motorsport, and having that part of be a part of that legacy was very meaningful and very inspiring and motivating to be a part of and to race at that level. I was always aware of how fortunate I was, number one, to be able to do this and to separate myself, to enjoy the whole journey mm. and there was there was always a moment of witnessing it and participating at the same time. Was trying to find that balance, and it's changed how I look at life and what my model for life is. After that, I think a lot of the lessons I learned in my uh, focus in and my attack on Le Mans really has served me in in everything else I do in life, without question. Really? Yeah, in the what, team aspect. Well, I, I it was certainly working with Portion with Tag and big organizations that have a great. History, there's a, certainly within Portia was like, we will have a good result. We know how to do this. What is in the way of stopping us from getting there? And we have to improve that and work on that. Mm. And a real methodical approach to the obstacle and how to overcome it and what the objective is in working as a team to achieve that objective. Mm. And getting the ego out of the way. And in Hollywood, it's very challenging because egos are so fragile because there's such insecurity. I think that's where it comes from. This is the thing to constantly remember is to keep people feeling safe. And that's what I felt I learned working with Porsche and with TAG is there was a safe environment and there was a, a level of commitment because of the heritage of what is expected of you and your involvement. And that's how you sort of, you take all those insights uh, and lessons and apply it to other aspects like the center work and, and like building team and starting to produce. It's like you take that mentality and shift it into new challenges. So for me going into being a team owner uh, and, and producing and doing these things, this is new uncharted territory and then pushing me to the edge of new things that I don't feel comfortable doing. And that's an important thing to remember is being uncomfortable.
1: Mm. Because then you're
0: starting, then you need to, because you have to continue to grow.
1: Of course. Because I, I, I imagine with a relay, you know, it's not like you're you're competing in a Grand Prix and it's just you the lone driver you're in a team and you there are you know, you're sharing the responsibility. Does that make it um I, I guess you've kind of just answered it, but does it take the the glamour out of it in a way? I don't know. I I just imagine it must be challenging to kind of share that glory. I don't or maybe I'm wrong.
0: No, because I like the team aspect of it, right? Yeah. And, you have, and because of the, the ranking system, when you have a, a gold, silver, and a bronze, every driver is ranked differently. So your race is really within yourself, always. That's the fun thing about endurance racing is you're not really racing your competitor as, as, as it is you're racing yourself. And how how far can you push yourself past your comfort level and still stay in control? Like you want to find the edge but you don't want to go over the edge, right? So that's that's the balance, that self-preservation, of like sensing that it's there, knowing that it's there, but not letting it suck you into the other side, having the emotional discipline to control it. It's like when you're on the the tack and you, you're up and you're close to the red line, you don't want to go into the red line. Hmm. You want to be right there where it's bouncing off the red line.
1: Sure. <laughs>
2: Our roads meet again on the starting line. For years, we wrote our own legend, chased our two destinies. We kept pace with the most daring drivers, won the most dangerous race, splitting a second in 100, slicing the wind. We timed the best lap, started in pole positions, raced on the most famous wrists, inaugurated legendary race tracks, we broke records of precision, revving up speedometers, delving into the infinitely small and channeling new energies to set new limits, running the same tracks. Our roads were meant to meet again. Here we are, ready to open new horizons to seek the thrill of being the first. Ready on a new starting line, together.
1: I guess it's also though managing the exhilaration that comes from being that close to the limit because the adrenaline must be pumping. It must be. It must be quite an addictive feeling. So it's managing It's a, it's that.
0: a calm high. See, that's the right. thing. Is like when you get to that level, there's it, there's a calm that overcomes you, where there's a power in the calmness, okay. not the crazy. Uh, out of control energy, but there's just something sublime in how calm you feel in the midst of all the turmoil. Like when you're in a race and you have multiple classes all around you and there's somehow you're enjoying it and you're aware of it and you're sort of fired up at the same time. That's beautiful because then you're aware of so many different things in life on so many different levels. And that's the hardest place to, to maintain, I think. And that's why the high of competition is so great. Everything else is just to the side, and you're right where you need to be in that moment.
1: Yeah, it's a, I guess it's that mindfulness thing again, isn't it? it yes, yeah, they talk
0: about being in the zone or being in that focus, and it's like, how do you, how do you do that without numbing out in life? You know, I think that's the thing. Once you've had highs like that in the competitive world, or even in one's career, that that's that's the thing that's very challenging. As you get used to living like that, then everything else gets dull. So you're trying to yeah. constantly find that feeling again.
1: Well, I mean, you've, you've stepped back from racing, at least as so insofar as you, the, the way you... Well, I reached my goal. Before. So now the yeah. stuff
0: I want to do in racing is sprint races. Like those would be the things that you could do two or three races in a weekend. And you go out, you do a 35 to a 40 minute race without driver changes and just full on sprint. That was the program I had for th- this year. But unfortunately, with COVID, it just wiped everything out. So.
1: I see. I, 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 I want
0: to keep in it enough to 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 keep the skills up and to stay. You know, I, I like the sport and it, I like the training for the sport and I like the camaraderie.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and I, the
0: competition's I, fun too. It <laughs>
1: <is>. <laughs> we can't deny it. You've got to Yeah, I mean, but you've you've still been doing a lot of acting and producing. Um, and you're still very much in the film and television world. I mean, is is that something you're wanting to maintain and and keep doing? Because I know there was that famous quote where you said, if you could stop. um, Yeah, if I was 25
0: years old, I would be racing full-time all the time (laughs) without the responsibility. So I want to be able to now, we did the documentary, which was Hurley, and then Art of Racing in the Rain finally got done. And I've got a, a documentary that I'm working on, on the mental aspect of sport. And then something with the U.S. Ski Team, with the women's uh, program and the success that the U.S. skiers had—a women's team in America—is pretty profound. So those are the things I want to do: is more producing mm. and and kind of control your own destiny.
1: I think those um, those stories within the sport world that kind of have that universal resonance are so powerful. We've seen it so much um, in cinema and in Hollywood. But for me, that Hurley, the Hurley, the film that you have made about um, Hurley Hayward is just so. So moving, because it's a topic, you know, he he comes out in the film um, as being gay in this very kind of macho world, particularly in the time that he was um, operating at his peak. Um, what kind of inspired you to make that film? Where did that that motivation come from?
0: He, wa- he really, Hurley wanted to tell his story, and I felt it was important to support him in that and also to put it in context to the sport and where he was at a time and place in the 70s, um, and also to the mental... Uh, uh, illness that we talk about in that documentary as well with, with Hurley's racing partner, you know, they were very successful in the seventies, but at the same time, you know, there was a mental illness with his, his his racing partner that we share as well. So those things were all important stories that I thought were, you know, it, 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 I think would be very healing for people to see. And it has, and it has been.
1: yeah. And personally speaking, it, it was as well. I found it really, really, really moving. Um, I, I There's a bit in that where he talks about kind of you have to de- dedicate everything to it. And I know that you, as we just talked about, you kind of stepped away because you wanted to spend more time with your family. Did you Did you recognize something of yourself in him?
0: Yeah, I think with all race car drivers or anyone who's on the road a lot, it's a sacrifice to your family and to the ones that are close to you. And you have to do it. It's not like, you know, you get up in the morning and it's like, there's something so deep inside of you that it's worth the sacrifice. You just have to do it. Hmm. And then when you have your goal and you set out to achieve it, there's a lot you sacrifice along the way. And then when you finally get there, there's, there is a internal shift. Once you realize your goal where you're like, okay, I've done that. Now it's time to recalibrate into focus on something new, new goals and for me, once I achieved that, it was, okay, it's time to get back and focus on my family and my personal life and and, and and start to balance that out again. Like, you know, once again, we talked about the pendulum swing. It's like you go to the extreme and then you got to find the center again and bring it back. And that's, for me, the sacrifice was no longer justifiable um, because I had achieved what I, I set out to achieve and I went as far as I could go with my ability. And I had the team and the support in place to do everything I wanted to do
1: i mean and then you
0: have to go okay now what's next like how do i what i was gonna
1: say and
0: how do you stay hungry and how do you keep yourself comfortable being uncomfortable and Mm. and have that desire to go out and train enough you know so you have to prioritize
1: so with that i mean you you clearly are a very goal oriented person um what what's the next goal what's what's the next big thing on the dempsey radar
0: I think really, you know, this year has been getting my daughter through, co- uh, through into college and making that transition and closing that door. And that's a goal in a sense of like, okay, now she's in a new chapter in her life. And this year is really setting up projects for the future as a producer. Um, so that's really what I've been focusing on is really cementing um, my career as a producer. And that is just by getting things done. So that's the next goal.
1: I, I, I listened to you a podcast where you spoke about how kind of being in charge of your own destiny, particularly as an actor, is the most important thing. Because otherwise, you're kind of just waiting for the phone to ring, and it and it, right. you know, it, and it can just not happen, and it can be soul destroying. Um, how that that's true, but how do you get to that point? Because I'm sure there'll be a lot of young people in not necessarily acting careers, but people listening to this who think, "Well, how do I become a master of my destiny?" Do you have any advice in that space?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, just value who you are as an individual because that in itself is sometimes hard to, to realize and to hear this is that you are unique for being who you are and your perspective is unique to who you are. And you have the technology. If you have an iPhone, you can make your own movies. You can be the star. I mean, look at TikTok. It's like you mm-hmm. can, there's technology out there. You can do a feature-length film or you can create your own show. Um, so that's what I would do. It's like, don't, there, you have the technology. It's just a question of, How's your storytelling? What's the story that you want to tell? You know, what's your perspective? What is your point of view on the world? And sharing that with us, you know, so anybody can do it. It's, it's, it's finding the idea that is moving to you. That's, uh, you know, what do you want to say? And for me, coming back to Maine allows me time to s- step back and to sit down and to throw the technology away and go out and walk around in nature in order to go, okay, what is it that's going on inside of me? You know, yeah. what do I want to focus on right now? What am I happy with? What am I unhappy with? What's troubling me? What's making me feel good? And having the time to sit in order to get ready for the next round of goals and, and things that you're going to go after.
1: Mm. I, it, we should probably talk a little bit about the things that you do personally. But speaking about the edge um, that you, the processes you go through to improve your performance, um, whether that's in acting, or whether that's in racing, or in anything. What, what are the um, what are the, the steps you take in order to, to do that?
0: I have to look in the mirror and go, okay, wh- w- take a good look at yourself and go, okay, what's working? What isn't? What do I need to improve? Hmm. And then sitting down at the beginning of any project and going, I'm a beginner, I'm starting over and trying to get your ego out of the way. That's the biggest thing is really not letting the ego in a negative way interfere with your work, trying to approach it with humility uh, and with openness and not letting all of those demons in the back of your head get in the way. So th- that's the first step, mm. I think, is, is the most important.
1: And the second step?
0: is <laughs> then it's execution. It's like understanding what it is and then going out and then grinding it out and getting it done.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, because you
0: have that romance and that momentum and that enthusiasm at the beginning of the journey. And then as it comes, then you got to get into the grind for sure you know
1: what well, i mean and it, enjoy
0: it's... that and and that's the hardest thing is to enjoy the process of it because ultimately at the end of the day when it's done that's all you have to really look back on is how how much have you enjoyed the process that was something that early on someone said to me the process is the product and i think that's an important thing to remember
1: absolutely absolutely i mean and i guess you know often it's about taking risks and you know, pushing yourself into spaces that you wouldn't necessarily feel uh, secure enough to that, that like, reaps the greatest rewards? I mean, what have been the moments in your life where you've taken the greatest risks?
0: When you go kicking and str- screaming into something and you realize that it's the best thing for you, you know? You you have that fear and you go into your fear uh, and you overcome it. Yeah. You know, when your heart rate goes up, you feel like you're having a heart attack, that's a big <laughs>
1: i imagine that comes more from racing than it does from acting
0: well no i think there are public events where you're out and you're in front of you're in front of a lot of people or there's something that has a lot of attention to it that you can get that way
1: i mean in terms of acting do you find um obviously acting for the screen is one thing but acting on stage i mean does that kind of get the blood pumping in a different way for you does that oh
0: absolutely i think it's a bigger it's a it's been a while since I've been on stage, but it's so immediate that you, you feel it right away. There's something wonderful in the process of it. And it's something my mother, I think, you know, she wanted me to do more stage work than I did. Did she? It's always something yeah, because it was something we, I started off in the theater and did it. And it, it is, it's a little bit more like motorsport in the sense that it's, you go off and you, you, you feel that anxiety before you get in the car. It's like stepping on stage for the first moment of the play. Uh, yeah, you know your heart's beating, and then you got to calm down. But that—that's a muscle that I haven't exercised in quite some time, which would probably be a good thing for me to do in the future.
1: Do, do, you, do, you, do you? It would have
0: to be the right play in the right environment, and certainly not something I want to do right now. Well, that was, no desire so, to do that. And, I'm and, more interested in documentaries, so I, I think the stuff like Hurley and doing more things within the 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 world of sport. To me, I think the mental aspect is something I really find intriguing and want to explore. And then also the female psych- uh, skiing team and the history in the U.S. is something that's really interesting to me in a sport that is, you know, if you're in Switzerland or you're in Europe, it's, it's the most important sport in America. It's just one of many sports that is, you know, fighting for attention.
1: T- t- tell me a little bit about that project. That, I mean, I'm very intrigued.
0: Well, we have one that's sort of mind, mind, uh, mind games, which is really the mental aspect of sport. How do you deal with fear? How do you deal with success? How do you deal with injury? How do you deal with retirement? And in and, and working with the the coaches, you know, the mental aspect of sport is huge. You know, everybody gets to a certain level, and then how do you handle the pressure mentally? That's going to either make you a champion or just make you an also run yeah so that's what we're focusing on that with some key athletes we're in pre-production on that, and then the history of the u s ski team the women's team to complement um the men's
1: documentary so do you think this marriage of kind of sport and documentary and film this is the kind of future for patrick dempsey is this is this where, where well, this mean? is the
0: immediate future the immediate. I mean there are other things that I'd like to do in a um you know, in a in a fictional way, that would be a different type of story. But yeah, this is sort of the direction of more producing. I don't know if I want to direct, but I certainly want to produce. I like bringing people together and creating a team. To me, that's that is definitely the direction I'm going. Now,
1: okay, so it's got that kind of parallel with what you've been doing with racing, I guess, in that in terms right of that same building thing, same team, thing. having. And then develop.
0: within the racing community, we continue on and develop the young drivers. And then I would like to do more uh, sprint racing things like. That.
1: Okay. And, and will the sprint racing kind of, how, how does that evolve? Where, where do you see, because I can't imagine that you're going to kind of stick. You do a, like a lot of level. the Porsche
0: Cup races and things like that. So the same, same eight cup, that's what I'd like to do. The cup racing in Porsche to me is probably the most competitive and the most exhilarating right now for the amount of time that I have to devote to the sport. And then I like the off-road racing too. I mean, I could get into doing some of the like Baja again or something like that. Those, those races are really a lot.
1: Okay, I mean, Patrick. We obviously are here with Tag Heuer, and we we should be talking about uh, apparently is an extraordinary watch collection that you have. Um, can can you tell tell us a little bit about about your watch collection?
0: Well, I'm getting into the interactive watches now, which oh, wow. is something I've resisted, <laughs> but I'm starting to see with everything I've been doing. I like the you know all of the the. The support you get from it, from your training and cycling and all that, and certainly with the golf, it's been really good. <laughs> so I see the potential with that. But I like the vintage stuff too. I think um, for me, the older watches, the watches that were created by Jack Queer have the most meaning in the in the context of the brand and, and his his impact. Mm-hmm. You know, in this in these couple decades that he his work and, and it's still, I think, uh, affecting the company on a profound level. Absolutely. as we see these, these these anniversary editions come out, you know. So I love which, all
1: that. Which model specifically? What's your The Octavia
0: and, and, and the Monaco are the two that mean the most yeah. for different reasons, you know.
1: Yeah. Because I guess the Monaco is often a little bit of an unsung hero in that space. No, I mean, you know, it was a
0: total yeah. disaster when yeah. it was launched, right? Because people didn't really – it wasn't until it was – you know, put into product placement that it changed everything. But yeah. it was so revolutionary at the time with the shape and the technology that it wasn't embraced immediately. And they had a lot of extra ones running around. So they gave it to the prop master for uh, Le Mans, the film. And that's, and now, you know, it's an iconic watch because of that. I
1: mean, that must feel... It's really
0: interesting, isn't it? When you look at the history and all the things that they had to overcome as and man. now it's one of the most important watches and styles uh, within the industry.
1: And the dedication to it, and the belief in it, and and as you say, the inauguration of that kind of placement, that really smart placement. I mean, which you are arguably quite a big part of yourself. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a strong history of Tag Heuer with with film, and you've got Steve McQueen, and now now you <laughs> racing. I mean, it, th- that must feel wonderful to be part of that. Legacy and that heritage—it's
0: like a dream come true. You know, you sit around and you fantasize on your couch as a kid or as a young adult, and you—you you, go, God, wouldn't it be great? And then when you start to achieve these things, there's a lot of pride in that. In that, you're representing a brand that has a great history within the motorsport industry and certainly in sport in general. Um, and you want to connect all the brands that you work with, and we, we're doing that, which is nice to see Porsche and TAG Heuer working together now and the beautiful history and legacy that they have, and, and what's the future have in store? You know, we know where we've come from. Where are we going? I mean, and what are the new goals?
1: You, um, you directed a visual poem to Jack Hoyer, right? Yeah, he was very moved by. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, it was a lot of the symbolism, right, of this stuff that he had, um, and certainly Porsche was. He had it he had that MG. That was his first car. It was a gift. His I believe his father gave him upon graduation from college. Yeah. Yeah. And and then the next one would be the, I think, the early 9-11. But that and his love for rally racing and and wanting to improve his times in rally racing was what led him to the development of a lot of the technology and innovation that he had. So it was fun to be able to tell that story s- through visual styling and and, and, uh, and to be able to use the music, black and white, and um, Janusz Kaminski, you know, Academy Award winning uh, documentary. Uh, um, DP, uh, director of photography, was great to work with. so We had a great style. Uh,
1: do you? Um, yeah, Jack Hoyer was arguably a polymath of his day. Also, um, do you do you see parallels uh, between the two of you?
0: No, I think about him a lot, though. You know, this, this week, I was up uh, doing something in northern Maine, you think of the history of skiing. And you know, he would teach skiing on the weekends. He'd fly up to, I think it was New Hampshire, Vermont, in the midst of running this company. it was, you know, they were just starting the company off in America too. So he had this double lifestyle. I was just, it was just such a fascinating period of time. And you think of Warren Miller and all the, the movies that were done at that period with skiing in that generation where there were a limitless possibility, you know, and you see his imagination, his skiing, and all that. He was a true sportsman and it reflected in the business. And we've lost that in a sense, and we don't want to lose that. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the organization is that they stay connected to him. And that was the beauty of doing that. Yeah. That little movie is, you know, we honor him and the inspiration and the foundation that he is, he's provided for the organization.
1: Well, it's a legacy you're arguably helping to maintain, uh, which, which of us feel like a, a fantastic. Yeah, day.
0: It's really, it's a tremendous honor. And, um, um, it, it, it definitely motivates you you know no question
1: well I, I mean I hope you um, I hope you manage to get back out on the track soon and uh, and that this doesn't this lockdown doesn't keep us out of doing the things that we you love know, it, too long
0: it's fun here I get I have like a little John Deere tractor which is really a, a little quad and I'll tell you bang for your buck it's so much fun so I bomb around the field in that and it gives me a, keeps my skills up on the car control
1: fantastic That's the trick. qualifiers <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you for joining us at The Edge, a podcast by Tag Heuer. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Edge is also an online magazine. Go to magazine.tagheuer.com for more articles, interviews, and photo series that bring together our love of watches and our desire to push ourselves to the edge of our limits. I'm your host, Theo van den Bruke. Until next time, keep an eye out. This is The Edge.